Disney, the entertainment powerhouse that owns, alongside its Disney-branded content, the intellectual property produced by Pixar and Marvel, the many works in the Star Wars and Indiana Jones portfolios, and platforms like ESPN, ABC, National Geographic, and most of what was until recently owned by Fox, including shows like The Simpsons, this behemoth of a media entity has not been doing so great over the past year or so. And this is stunning, as Disney seemed to be moving from strength to strength this past decade, dominating box offices with win after win, its Marvel movies all but owning theaters around the world, and its Pixar and Disney-branded offerings consistently pulling in tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in profit. Disney also, back in late 2019, spun up its own Netflix competitor, the online streaming service Disney+, Plus, which was founded on the premise that Disney owns enough intellectual property to sustain a streaming platform made up entirely of its own content. So while other services, with few exceptions, have to pay to use other entities' work in order to flesh out their catalogs, Disney could fill up an entire streaming platform with content they already own. So a pretty big power play, and something few other companies would be able to match. That bet, unfortunately for Disney corporate, has not seemed to pay off, monetarily at least. By all indications, the service is pretty well liked, and there is just a staggering amount of content on it, and that helped it attract a flood of users right out of the gate, pulling in nearly 100 million subscribers by early 2021, shortly after the company's higher-ups announced that they would be reorganizing their business to put a greater focus on streaming, rather than focusing on theatrical releases and theme parks. A few price increases, announcements about potential mergers with Hulu, another streaming service that Disney majority owns and may soon entirely own if it goes through with plans to buy out Comcast's remaining partial ownership of the platform, and announcements about an ad-supported tier for the service later, Disney Plus now seems a bit more precarious. The company's leadership, headed by former, as of his retirement in 2020, and then once again CEO, as of late 2022, Bob Iger, who was brought back in to lead Disney by the company's higher-ups, following what's been seen as a series of missteps by Iger's replacement, Bob Chappick, that Iger-led leadership has been less bullish on Disney Plus than the previous Condra. And in mid-May of 2023, it was announced that Disney Plus and Hulu would remove nearly 60 original films and TV shows from the platforms as part of a larger cost-cutting effort within the company. This was followed by more cuts in early July, and though the company has suffered some reputational damage as a consequence of these removals, the higher-ups are reportedly considering pulling even more shows and films as their streaming service continues to cost the corporation gobs of money on the order of billions of dollars. And though it climbed to nearly 165 million subscribers in 2023, it has lost millions of subscribers in recent quarters, while also losing money on its last several theatrical releases, a compounding collection of issues that do not bode well 
for their current streaming-centric strategy. These cuts to their service, then, are meant to help them save money in the long term, costing them on the order of about $1.5 billion up front and those associated reputational hits, but they should reduce costs related to residuals and other such expenses over the long term. What I'd like to talk about today is the bigger picture surrounding those residual payments and the corporate decisions being made related to them, and a huge and potentially quite significant residual-sparked strike that's playing out in the U.S. entertainment industry right now. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Disney's efforts to cut content from their services doesn't make a lot of sense from the perspective of viewers who typically want more options when they sign up for a streaming product. Fewer shows and movies would seem like a bad thing, and theoretically at least, a bad thing that could cause them to stop paying for a platform that no longer has as much content for them to watch. From the perspective of the company behind that service, though, fewer shows and movies means fewer long-term expenses, because each time a show or movie is streamed, a tiny amount of money must be paid out to the people involved in making that show or movie. These payments are called residuals, and they are how a lot of people operating in this industry pay their bills. Writers and actors in particular are not necessarily always working daily on a show or movie, so in between gigs, they sustain themselves, pay their rent, and pay for their groceries, things like that, using the residual payments they earn from work that they have done in the past. These payments are often quite small, but if you do enough of this type of work, they can add up to something survivable, and in some cases quite substantial. The folks who acted on the TV show Full House back in the 90s, for instance, none of whom were executive producers and none of whom owned the show, earned checks ranging from $2 to $2,000 a month from reruns of that show. In 2015, the owners of the TV show Friends received about a billion dollars a year from syndicating it, and of that, about 2%, around $20 million, was sent out to the folks who made the show in residuals checks. Numbers from 2020 indicate that Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David, the co-creators of the nine-season-long sitcom Seinfeld, earned around $400 million apiece each syndication cycle. And even old-school shows like I Love Lucy, which continue to be syndicated to this day, were pulling in around $20 million in residuals for those involved in making it as of 2012. So this is an at-times decent chunk of money, even if it's being spread out amongst an at-times large number of people who made a given show. And although not all shows enjoy the long syndication replay afterlife of programs like Friends and I Love Lucy, which limits the residual earning potential for those who were involved in making those capped shows, there's always the chance that this passive income will serve as a lifelong paycheck for the folks working in this industry, which is part of what makes these jobs sustainable, as, again, writers and actors and everyone else involved don't typically have a steady paycheck. They have gigs, with at times large gaps between those gigs. And most of this type of work doesn't pay very much, relative to the cost of living in areas where such production is done. There's a very small number of millionaires, mostly actors, 
and then a huge collection of people just scraping by, getting paid a bit, and then making a little extra here and there in residual checks. That's what the entertainment industry looks like. The recent shift in the global economy toward inflation-busting measures like high interest rates has changed some of the math being done by TV producers like Netflix and Warner Brothers and Disney, however, which in turn is changing the on-the-ground financial math for folks working in this industry. Whereas previously, these companies were happy to burn money in order to steal a march on their opposition and hopefully build a moat for themselves, netting them enough subscribers and loyalty through the production of a lot of great content so they can eventually get away with jacking up the prices on their streaming platforms and thus earning profits on all of their investments in these assets. Whereas previously that was the ambition, this change in the larger economy forced investors and other corporate types to refocus on short-term profitability rather than long-term dominance. And that has led to waves of cost-cutting measures, including removing as many shows and films as they think they can get away with from their platforms, which usually costs them a bit up front, but then saves them those at times large long-term residual costs from that point forward, which consequently makes the expense column in their accounting ledger look a lot more favorable at a moment in which that is all anyone is really looking at. This has led to some awkward and bizarre situations. Paramount Plus's show Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies, for instance, was nominated for two Emmys, but that show, at the time of its nomination, was no longer available to legally watch anywhere. It was recently removed from Paramount Plus's service as part of these cost-cutting measures, which means those involved in making it will no longer earn residuals on it, and Paramount will save that money they would have otherwise paid out. Several other shows have likewise disappeared from services, only to then win various awards nominations, which highlights the fact that many of these cost-cutting decisions have little or nothing to do with the quality of the shows and films, and everything to do with how much they will cost these networks to keep on their services. All of which is relevant to recent happenings in the entertainment labor space, as a strike by the Writers Guild of America West, or WGA, which is the union most Hollywood writers belong to, kicked off in May. And a few months later, on July 12th, SAG-AFTRA, which is the guild most Hollywood actors belong to, went on strike as well. This is the first time in 63 years that both unions have been on strike at the same time. And as was the case with that previous 1960s-era double strike, this new one arrives at a moment of significant economic, technological, and industrial tumult. The tumult back then, in the 60s, was also tied to the issue of residuals, though the technology rocking the boat at the time was TV which was still pretty new and weird to people, but production companies were earning money from the movies that they made on the big screen that were then broadcast on television using advertisements for that profit. And the people making these shows, the actors and writers, were not earning a dime on those broadcasts. The Actors Guild president at the time, a pre-politics Ronald Reagan, was able to force producers to pay residuals on TV broadcasts to actors after several months of striking, and the Writers' Union was able to get the same several months later, though it took a total of 148 days of picketing. And it was a tooth-and-claw fight 
Everyone involved suffered quite a lot, as the actors and writers were not able to work and thus had no income for the duration, and the studios, the companies behind these productions, were not able to make anything either. All such strikes, especially today, as the entertainment industry has become more fundamental to the economies of the cities in which they are located, like LA, also impact the financial well-being of the folks who run the restaurants and coffee shops, who drive the taxis and provide janitorial services. All of these businesses are in various ways entangled with the industry. So when shows and movies are not being made, a lot of these businesses go under. A lot of people have to find new jobs and or move to less expensive areas, and the whole foundation of this industry becomes a little bit more fragile for a while. For their part, modern TV networks on the producer side have some other options to fill the gaps during strikes, like producing reality TV shows and other sorts of unscripted programming, which don't require much in the way of professional writing or acting. But even those sorts of shows require lead time to produce, so we could be looking down the barrel of a prolonged shortage of new films and TV shows coming out of Hollywood if this new pair of strikes goes on for any amount of time. According to divulgences from industry insiders, part of the plan on the side of the production companies is to basically bleed the writers out, not even going to the negotiating table for months, waiting them out, and hoping that by the time they return and reopen negotiations, the folks on the side of the writers will be so desperate and not able to afford food, losing their homes, things like that, that they will take just about anything that is offered to get productions going again so they can start earning money again. The addition of the Actors Guild into this equation complicates things a bit, as there are wealthier members of that group that can sustain things for longer, and there are more recognizable faces as well, which will bring more attention to the plight of those striking from both unions, and will likely help bring the public to the strikers' side as well, as these well-known, well-loved celebrities won't be doing any promotion for upcoming projects for the duration, and will instead be focusing on making their case about why these production companies should give in to their demands. Among those demands is better compensation, especially related to streaming. And this has been the focus of previous strikes as well, like the one back in the 60s, but also of a more recent one in the early 2000s, which was focused on residuals for DVD boxed sets that were all the rage at the time. New technologies tends to mean new issues related to residuals. Also on the docket is better workplace treatment, especially for writers, and perhaps most vitally in some ways, a collection of concerns related to artificial intelligence. The AI angle here could be fundamental to all future negotiations, as apparently some producers have been pressuring their actors to get full-body scans and have then been trying to get them to sign away the right to use those scans, however the production companies want in the future, without further compensation for the actors. The idea being that they could then pay background actors in particular just once for one day's work, and they could then pop them into the background of a scene using CGI as much as they want from that point forward, no compensation or residuals necessary. This would obviously not be ideal for those actors who would, from that point forward, lack a way to earn money from their career, but it would be great for the production companies, which would be able to pay a little more upfront 
to permanently remove future expenses from their accounting ledger, same as they're aiming to do with their catalogs when they remove shows and films from their streaming services. The writers have concerns about AI too, as many suspect with some justification that the producers are intending to feed scripts that they've written previously into an AI to train that AI on their writing style and then to use that AI to churn out new scripts in the future. Maybe hiring a few writers here and there to edit that AI-generated content, but in general, reducing the amount of work that writers can do and thus the amount of work that they will be hired and compensated for. Now you could make the argument that this AI use case for both actors and writers in the entertainment industry is similar to what we're seeing in other industries in which new technologies are introduced and new efficiencies are thenceforth possible. So why fight that innovation? Why punish those trying to automate a costly and time-consuming process? Why not tell these writers to go get other jobs, in other words, to retrain, to become electricians or whatever else? When we feel perfectly comfortable telling, for instance, auto mechanics who work on internal combustion engine vehicles to do the same, to go relearn everything so they can work on electric vehicles rather than standing in the way of necessary progress. You can also argue that this is different. This is related to creativity, not maintenance or manufacturing. But the truth is the lived experience of having your industry, your career, change around you is going to be the same, no matter what field you work in. So setting the sustainability aspect of the EV transition example aside, what we are seeing here is another manifestation of that struggle between folks who stand to profit greatly from the introduction of new technologies and those who would be forced out of their careers if those who stand to profit are successful in this regard. It seems likely that skilled writers working with AI would be superior to writers alone or AI alone, but the economics of the situation seems to favor producers trying to use mostly just AI if they can get away with it, because that will cost them a lot less and probably take a lot less time too. This struggle is about figuring out who controls this aspect of production then, and if the producers win out, that'll mean writers have a lot less leverage in the future because they will be less necessary to the process, while if the writers win, they will be able to basically put those AI tools in their own hands, maintaining that bit of leverage for a while longer. And the same is true of the actors, who might be scanned and adjusted and replicated by producers, the power over those scans and reproductions being the stakes in this standoff. This type of debate and conflict is not limited to just the entertainment industry, and we're seeing it play out across industries ranging from the fine art world to that of package delivery, where workers at UPS are also preparing to strike, demanding better compensation and better treatment during a period in which a lot more shopping has moved online, which has in turn made delivery drivers all the more fundamental to the global economy. UPS workers thus have more power right now than they have ever wielded, and they are taking the opportunity to lock in better pay and more rights, threatening a strike that could cost the U.S. economy more than $7 billion if the strike goes on for just 10 days, according to a recent estimate. 
Though if that strike does move forward, they will be facing off with company leaders who are incentivized to give as little as possible so as to avoid adding more costs to their balance sheets at a moment of many economic unknowns, a dynamic that will probably sound familiar by now. We're living through a period of interconnecting paradigm shifts, in other words, and the confluence of rapidly evolving technologies and norms related to those technologies and the unusual economic circumstances we're trying to collectively navigate has brought many interests into competition with each other, even though under other circumstances where neither side feels they have a clear leg up on the other or so much to lose to the other, these interests would instead be, out of necessity, best served by collaboration. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration by Jake Biddle. This book does a pretty good job of covering some of the big picture topics related to climate migration, and in particular focusing on climate migration within the United States, but then combining that with on-the-ground narratives and realities. So there's a lot that you can do just looking at raw numbers and analyses and possibilities. This book does that a bit and then combines it with the stories of actual people who have gone through and who are going through what a lot more people seem likely to go through in the near future, which is being forced from their homes, from their hometowns in some cases, because of changing climate realities. Incredibly high temperatures and droughts and severe storms of various sorts, all kinds of things that are becoming more likely and more extreme as a consequence of the shifting climactic context in which we are living. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Great Displacement by Jake Biddle. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your pods or at onesentencenews.com. And please feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube, and at Colin is my name on Twitter, Instagram, and yes, even threads. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.